reading from Acts 10, 44 through 11, 18. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Peter, who is bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. I see most of you did not trust me to say that this time. Um, let's pray together. Father, we are, again, so grateful to be able to come together and worship this morning. God, this is an important passage that we see this morning. It's important because in it we see uh, your heart towards all people, the nations. We see your heart towards, uh, towards those who, um, who, are, who are not of the people of Israel and your heart towards people who are, who are outcasts. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, internalize those words that you've given to us this morning. I pray that we would learn from them. I pray that we would uh, repent where repentance is needed, that we would praise where praise is uh, due to you. I pray that we would respond, Lord, eagerly. I pray that you would uh, make this time, as we hear from you in your word, profitable. Lord, I pray that we would receive um, this message from Luke, knowing that it comes from you. And Lord, I pray that we would um, ultimately uh, desire to be a place that says, 
there's no such thing as an unclean person, both in our theology and in our church culture. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, I don't know if you uh, have any um, actions that just defy your own beliefs, but I do, and I'll give you some examples of that. Number one, snack foods. I've learned recently that I have a big problem with snack foods. And, I mean, I'm not just a king of, you know, dietary practice. I'm not just, you know, like a really, really health conscious. But my diet's overall not bad, except for my habitual snacking, right? Um, Doritos, Funyuns, I love that stuff. And some of you are probably like, that is disgusting. Um, you are fortunate. Uh, and... I, I know that this stuff is bad for me, and I know that I have a problem with it. And you're probably thinking, how big of a problem? I have, on more than one occasion, eaten a bag of Funyuns for dinner. So just to put that out there so you understand where I'm coming from. And you would think, okay, well, if he has such a problem with snack food and he knows it, he must not buy it, right? Wrong. I do. I buy it all the time. Uh, I have zero restraint in the store as I do at home. Uh, so I buy snack foods all the time, knowing that they're bad for me, right? I know they're bad for me, but I buy them anyway. Another probably stranger example of having actions that just totally defy my own beliefs, my own opinions, is that I, number one, like baseball. I like watching it. I really do. Um, I like how it's an intricate, uh, kind of complicated sport. Like, it, it looks really simple at surface level, but it just it's very deep. There's a lot of layers to it. Um, and I love watching. I love anticipating, like, what pitches pitchers are going to throw. Um, I, I, I find it fun to go out and watch, you know, like, my, my brother plays high school baseball, and when I get the chance, I love to go watch him. So you might think, well, if there's a guy who likes watching baseball, but he watches baseball a lot. Wrong. Again, uh, I don't. I watch baseball almost never. Um, and there's not really a particularly good reason for that. I just don't want to, right? Um, I like watching baseball, but I just don't want to. Uh, and so I, I, it's just a, an errant self-contradiction. Um, a lot of modern people find there be no problem with you know, self-contradictions. They uh, would just embody, employ, you know, a quote from Walt Whitman, do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. That attitude is maybe fine when you're talking about snack foods or baseball or something like that. But what about when things get more important, when we start talking about our deeper beliefs? Is it okay then to contradict ourselves? I think that is probably a bit of a different story, right? Like, for instance, say that you believe stealing is wrong. It's a wonderful belief to have. I encourage that. Um, Say you believe that stealing is wrong, but at the same time, you embezzle $5,000 from your company. At that point, I might have to ask, okay, how much do you really believe that stealing is wrong? Um, and you may say, no, 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 I believe it honestly, I believe it earnestly. Well, your actions kind of betray that, and your actions should flow out of your beliefs. The things that you believe should determine the way you act. Well, it's the same way in church culture, right? We have lots and lots and lots of beliefs. We're a believing people, right? We often refer to ourselves as believers. We hold certain things to be true, and we should, right? We have things that are true. We should believe them for their own sake, for the truth of the matter. 
And we should also believe things because uh, the scriptures tell us to. We, we want to be informed people. And without being informed, without knowing the right thing, it's, it's impossible to do the right thing, right? We, we need to know and believe and hold on to important truths. But we also need to live those truths out because we, uh, along with the truths that are proclaimed, it should change us. It should change our lives. It should change our entire church, right? We don't want to be a people who, who get an A-plus in theory, but then get a D-minus or an F in their lab, right? We want to be people who live out what we believe. And so last week, we talked about, uh, we talked about what I called a no-unclean-person doctrine, right? We talked about the truth that God has made the, the gospel free and available to all people who come to him in repentance and faith without distinction, without, without, whether, it be, whether it be Jew, whether it be Gentile, and, and of course all the distinctions that, that divide and make up uh, us as people regardless of, of where we come from or background. So um, we, we talked about that truth last week, but this week we're now transitioning uh, from from uh, a doctrine kind of look at that to how should that change the way that our, our church treats people and treats one another? What does it look like to go from a no unclean person uh, doctrine where there's no such thing as a common or unclean person to um, how do we live that out? How is it displayed in the way that we treat other people and treat outsiders? Well, I believe what we see in, in this passage is uh, the Lord validating um, the reception and the hearing uh, of these people who were outcast uh, by, uh, by, the, by the Jewish people at the time. The Lord bringing them in, and then the church also receiving and bringing them in. And I believe that this passage is helping us to show that a culture like that, a no unclean person kind of culture, means that we are able to welcome and receive people regardless of the, the circumstances that make up their life, whether they be single or married, whether they uh, be employed or unemployed, whatever their socioeconomic uh, background might be, whether they, um, whether they be uh, in, in a strong place in their mental health, whether they not be, whether they um, look like us, act like us, regardless, we should take in and accept those that God has accepted. And so, um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the passage uh, that picks up right where we left off in um, Acts chapter 10, towards the end of that, and going through uh, the first half of chapter 11, where we see uh, this good news that was proclaimed to the Gentiles, we see the response and the working out of that. And as such, I, I believe we see um, these people being received by, uh, by the Lord, these people being received by Peter, and these people were being received by the early church, and I think that is uh, going to help us see what it means to live out the truth that the gospel has been made available to all people regardless of uh, distinction. And so um, to look at it, we're going to see that God, that a, a no unclean person culture it welcomes without reservation those whom God saves. Culture like that is willing to accept criticism when we accept those whom others reject. And last of all, culture like that is tied together by the sameness of our salvation in Jesus. So um, first we see that a no unclean person culture welcomes without reservation those who God saves. 
We see that uh, in the response to the gospel that was preached uh, there in chapter 10 of Acts. Let me read that for you. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptism to these people who have received, uh, received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, that they asked him to remain for some days. So in this passage, uh, we're picking up right where we left off. Um, where we left off, as you remember, was Peter, uh, he received word from this man named Cornelius. And he came to this man, and he preached the good news to him and all of the other Gentile uh, men and women there uh, who were in his company. Right? That's where we left off. And immediately here, we jump in to see the response of Peter preaching that message. And it, it comes in a dramatic way, because Peter, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, was interrupted right, as he was proclaiming the gospel, and the Holy Spirit came down upon all the people there. Like, I, I imagine it visually, um, kind of like uh, that common movie trope, where at the end of the movie, like, you know, uh, two people have been, uh, like, growing together, and then they, they are getting married, and they're there, and the officiant, he's, he says, you may now kiss them, before he can even finish it, right, uh, they start uh, kissing there at the end, and he kind of stands back, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, like uh, often happens at the end of those movies. Well, I see that kind of the same way. Peter has uh, come to these people, he's preaching the message, the good news, and um, before he can even finish, the Holy Spirit comes down upon these people. And as such, God is validating their salvation. God is saying that you are truly part of the people of God. You have truly received the Holy Spirit, and you are now welcomed in. You have been saved from your sins, and I am putting that seal upon you. Um, some people refer to this as the Gentile Pentecost, and I get where they're coming from, um, but also we kind of recognize the fact that Pentecost was Pentecost, right? This is not a separate event for a separate group of people in the church. This is the same Holy Spirit that came and indwelt the Jewish believers is now coming into uh, the Gentile believers. It comes in a visible way, similar to the original Pentecost, but uh, the distinction there is that there's not a distinction between these Jewish people and these Gentile people, but they are now brought together into one body. The same Holy Spirit that came to them has now come to these Gentiles, and such God is validating uh, their inclusion in his people. Peter responds to this by validating God's validation, basically. Uh, he does that in a couple of ways. So first, Peter wants the Holy Spirit to come down upon these people, baptizes them. That is really significant. You might, uh, you might be familiar with the usual kind of like Sunday school Baptist definition of baptism, that it's an outward sign of an inward reality, and that's absolutely true. Baptism demonstrates uh, the fact that we, we have died with Jesus by being dipped into the water and that we're being raised to new life by coming out of the water. But baptism is also more than that. Right? Baptism is the mark of beginning of, uh, of 
membership in the church. It's always been that way, right? From the very earliest days of the church as we see here in practice of even Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and, and even to today, right? It, it has always marked the beginning of membership and entrance into uh, the church. And so um, essentially what happens is it's, it's almost like a notarization, which is maybe the most boring possible metaphor that I could come up with for it, but um, is, is accurate, right? A notary uh, will stamp a document that you sign to say that person was really here and they really signed this paper and saying essentially that your signature is true. In the same way, when the church baptizes someone, they're saying this person has truly been saved by Jesus and they're truly part of our, um, our faith family of our congregation. And so when Peter baptizes these people, he is saying, yes, you truly are born again, and you truly are part of us, right? And so Peter validates their salvation that way. But he goes even further. Um, it says there at the end of this passage in verse, uh, this, this short little section, in verse 48, then they asked him to remain for some days. And we have to assume that he did so because it was some time before he, um, he got back to uh, Jerusalem to these, uh, to these other people we'll get to in a minute. And because I think it would be odd for Luke to include that if he didn't stick around, you know. Um, so not only, though, did Peter baptize these people, he stayed with them. He fellowshiped with them, right? He didn't uh, just dunk them and leave and say, ah, i got to get back to Jerusalem. You know, I'm not really supposed to be around you guys and leave. No, he stayed with them for several days and extended fellowship to them, right? It wasn't merely a situation where he's like, all right, you can be in, but I'm not going to treat you like you're in, right? I'm going to keep you at a distance. No, he stayed with them uh, for several days and, and as such uh, demonstrated that they were worthy of fellowship and they were worthy of, uh, of inclusion in one another. And so the question for us is, are we willing to validate those whom God has validated, right? One of the sad truths of the church is that sometimes the church, and I, I, I believe almost every time, unintentionally, the church does not always validate those whom God saves, right? And sometimes that can, that can come in like, a, like an obvious way where um, we, we don't baptize somebody who should be baptized for, for whatever reason. But I, I don't think that's particularly common. I think what's much more common is that we welcome people in in baptism, but then reject fellowship with them, right? It's, we'll let you in the church building, but we won't let you in our house, right? We'll let you be around us uh, up here. We'll, we'll let you um, be part of the church, but we don't really want you to be part of us, right? It's a narrow and, and kind of awful distinction when it happens. But you hear from that, you hear that time and time again. A person says, I, I came in to this church, but I never felt like I was really in. I came in, but I never received validation that my salvation was true because I, I was just there with them, right? I, I heard the preaching, I heard the singing, but I never felt like part of them. I felt at arm's length. So the question for us becomes, are we willing to validate? Are we willing to extend fellowship to those that God has saved, even, even when they, they don't meet our preferences, when they, they, we, we may not even personally like them at first, right? Are we willing to fellowship? Are we willing to validate those that God has validated? 
All right, so we see the uh, a no unclean person culture. It should welcome without reservation those whom God saves, but also is willing to accept criticism when we accept those whom others reject. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm, I won't read all of this. What's relevant is probably the first three verses of, um, of chapter 11. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, so after Peter baptized these men and after he had stayed with them some time, uh, the news of what he did, understandably, uh, traveled faster than he did, right? It, It reached Jerusalem uh, before, uh, before he did, which, you know, we're all experienced with, uh, with that sort of thing, living in a town like Tupelo. Uh, people usually know what's going on with our lives before we tell them. Uh, and so, anyway, Peter, this, this news reaches the, um, the people who were um, in, in Jerusalem, and when Peter gets back, uh, he receives criticism from what the ESV calls the circumcision party. Um, I feel like I should do my due diligence here and point something out. Um, with this translation, uh, circumcision party, uh, if you are to translate it literally, um, it does not say circumcision party. It says those of the circumcision. I think that's just important to point out uh, because I don't personally, like that may be a good translation, um, but I don't see any warrant through the rest of this that this group, when, when I hear party, I think of a group that's like a political party, right? That's organized, that, is, uh, that has like a specific agenda, that sort of thing. I'm not sure that I see that per se, um, so I don't wanna, you know, anyway, I just wanna throw that out there. I'm always hesitant to like give any kind of criticism to like a translation committee, um, each of whom know more about it than me, but you know, just pointing out there, literally it just says those the circumcision. But anyway, so this group, uh, organized or not, uh, criticized Peter's actions. And they criticized, interestingly, not that he baptized Gentiles or that he preached the gospel to the Gentiles. They criticized that he ate with Gentiles. When I first read that, I was, it ruffled my feathers a little bit, honestly, because I was like, really? Come on, guys. Like, your problem's not that he's preaching the Gentiles. Your problem's not that he's baptizing. It's, it's that, that he's eating with them. It's like, it's like so intentionally, like, I, I'm fine with them, you know, receiving Jesus, but I am not fine with uh, you eating with them. But then I remembered, um, and, and I thought about it a little more, and I had a little bit of, uh, of empathy, so I think I owe it to you to explain why I kind of understood why they said this a little bit. Um, last week I mentioned, and I, I want to reiterate because it's important to understand, the Jewish teaching at the time was that eating with Gentiles was wrong, right? They, they didn't have a prior category for whether it was right to preach Jesus to the Gentiles or to baptize Gentiles or anything like that. What they knew and what they had been taught time and time again, again, not from the Old Testament per se, but you know, through an interpretation of the Old Testament, is that it was wrong to even eat with Gentiles or be around them. And I, for instance, let me just read you this. Um, it's from the Book of Jubilees. Um, you will not find that in your table of contents. Uh, that is not part of the Old Testament, but it was a popular Jewish work at the time. It said, uh, separate yourself from the nations and eat not with them and do not according to their works and become not their associate. 
for their works are unclean, all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. Right? Okay. You've got that in one ear. You're hearing that. And then you hear in the other ear that the, the leader of this, this group that you're in, this leader of Jesus followers, is eating with Gentiles. And you think, well, that crosses paths with what I know to be true. And so, anyway, they, they give uh, criticism to Peter for, um, for his actions, for his eating with the Gentiles, and I guess by extension, uh, some of the work that he had done with them. Peter, um, interestingly, does not respond by chewing their head off, right? He does, not, he does not throw down. He just simply responds by telling them what happened. And I think the reason he was able to do that is he understood that when a, a community begins to accept those who were previously excluded, criticism is a natural byproduct of that, right? It's a natural byproduct, like buttermilk when you're making butter, or apparently Vaseline when uh, you're drilling for oil. Um, do you know that? Like, Vaseline comes from oil rigs. It just appears like lint on the machines. But anyway, um, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, but anyway, when a community begins to accept those who've been rejected, criticism always follows, right? Criticism always comes. Um, it happens sometimes from without, right? It happens for people who are outside that community, who are outside that, uh, you know, in our context, congregation, you know, perhaps people of, of other churches, of, um, of other faiths, or perhaps just other people who, who look at a community and say, ah, they're inviting those people in. That's weird. I, I, why are you being around them? Right? And, they, and they criticize and they mock and they scorn. Right? And a good example of this is what Paul faced in Galatians. Right? When in Galatians, uh, there were in this church or in these churches, people who came from the outside agitating against the teaching that Paul was making right? and opposing what he said did and uh, they, they came in they were they were agitating us and Paul had strong words against that sometimes criticism comes from within comes from within our, our own group within our own congregation when, when people begin to uh, be included who are not included they say um, oh I don't know about that right they begin to have questions they, they, they think I don't know that we really need uh, such or such person here right so criticism frequently comes when people are accepted who, uh, who others don't really approve of being accepted, right? But how do we respond to criticism like this? How do we respond um, in a, a God-honoring way? Well, I think it's important it, it, to, to see here an example for us, right? I think what's being put forward is, is a model for us in, in how to respond to this kind of criticism. So note that Peter responds gently, right? He, again, he does not assume these guys are just a bunch of jerks, right? He does not begin just tearing into them, laying into them, just uh, showing them the what for. He responds gently, you know? He, he's, he's winsome with them. He, he's gentle. But he's also firm. He also stands for truth, right? He, he says, these people receive the Holy Spirit just as we have, and as such, they're deserving of fellowship and a place in our body. So he's gentle but firm, right? That's probably not going to blow anybody away. Uh, it's what we're told again and again and again, just it, even just, you know, polite contemporary wisdom, but, but also again and again in Proverbs and the scriptures that, that a gentle answer turns away wrath. But again, we are called to be, um, we are called to be loving in our response uh, to 
um, one another, and we're, we're, we're called to, to stand for the things we believe. All right, so um, a no unclean person culture, it welcomes without reservation those whom God saves, and it's willing to accept criticism when we accept those who others reject. But last of all, a no unclean person culture modeled for us here in these early chapters is tied together by the sameness of our salvation in Jesus. Let's read again uh, those last few verses of this passage, beginning of verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right, so what Peter's saying here is, I think, beautiful and significant, right? Peter, the center of his identity was bound up in Jerusalem. The center of Peter's identity was found in his, his practice and in, in the ritual system, bound up in clean dietary practices and, you know, just clean practices in general. It was bound up in Sabbath obedience, right? In essence, his identity was bound up in being a Jew. But now something had shifted. What was key, most central about his identity is not he was a Jew, but that he was a follower of Jesus. That Jesus had saved him from his sins. He had given him new life, and he had the prospect of eternity with him, right? His identity, the core of his identity has shifted. What he realized now is, is what had separated and divided him from these other people was now a secondary issue, something that could easily be looked past because now he shared that core identity with these Gentile believers. The same was true for them. They had come to follow Jesus. They had repented of their sins. They were following him. They were receiving new life. They were receiving an eternity with Christ. What was deepest and most true about Peter was now deepest and most true about these Gentiles. In other words, um, the Holy Spirit had come upon him, come upon them, and had shown that now they shared the same salvation. And so what united them, what united them together, was not any kind of preference. It was not even religious practice, but it was the salvation in the person and work of Jesus. There is, because of this, an immense capacity for unity and diversity in the church, for both, for incredible unity and incredible diversity in the church, to have both because of our shared salvation in Jesus. There is a worldly kind of diversity, right? There, there is a kind of diversity that the world is able to share with one another. And perhaps this happens at your workplace, right? Maybe there are people of all different backgrounds who come together and they get a job done, right? They work together, they cooperate, and they get the job done. And that's a Good thing. They're shared. They have a shared goal. They have a shared vision. There's a shared task that binds people together, different people together. Or, you know, think about the Power Rangers. Um, if you want a more literally colorful uh, example, uh, you know, like the Power Rangers, uh, every season, you know, you, you get together and 
the, this group was almost comically diverse, right? I mean, you, you didn't only have like one of every like, you know, you know male, female, and every, every uh, ethnicity represented, but it was like everybody was, like you had a jock, you had a dork, you had a, um, is that a mean thing to say? I can say it because I am a dork. Um, you had like some guy who like works on cars and you know, a rock climber. And they get together, they have all these different personalities, um, but they have a shared goal, right, to save the world. So they have this shared goal or same vision. And a lot of times that's how worldly, you know, unity amidst diversity works, is there's something bigger than us, something to accomplish, some task or goal or vision that binds everybody together. But there's, there's weaknesses to worldly diversity, um, unity amidst diversity especially, that, that I believe that our unity in Christ Overcomes is much better than, right? I believe that unity amidst diversity like that is fragile. When you have a shared goal or vision or dream or whatever else, what happens when that's accomplished? When it's no more? Or whether, when it's unable to be accomplished, right? The things that tied you together, or the thing that tied you together is, is no longer there. And it's fragile, it breaks apart, right? It, it can't last forever. But we as Christians, our shared identity, our shared salvation, the source of our unity is a person. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our unity should not ever be fragile because we share a Savior who is forever. Also, diversity of, of worldly kind is just skin deep, right? It's only... It only is a kind of uh, we'll work together because we have to kind of thing, or we have something bigger than us, something has to be accomplished. We'll put us on our differences, and we'll, we'll work to this goal. But what we have in Jesus, the shared unity we have in Jesus, goes to the very deepest core parts of our identity, right? It confronts what's most wrong with us. It confronts our sin. It confronts the ways uh, that, that we have broken the law of the Lord, the way that we have violated his commands. And it tells us that we have a glorious, wonderful future because Christ has saved us from those sins, right? This is a deep message, right? This is core to us. It's, it's very central to our identity, and we're able to hold this with one another. Just as Peter here um, is able to hold this shared salvation uh, with, with Gentiles because what is deepest and most true about him is now deepest and most true about these other people. So we're able to have unity amidst diversity because we worship a Savior that binds us together. And so my final charge, and I think most important charge, when I look at the passage, I, I look at its calls and its the way it speaks, I believe our final charge is this, to keep our shared salvation in Jesus, the source of our unity, right? There is, there's a lot of things that can bind us together, even as a church, right? We can be bound together with one another because our friends go here. We can be bound together because we, we like the pastor. We can be bound together because we, you know, the church in some way meets our preferences. It's, it's, you know, uh, we, we like the music or the preaching or the this or that. But those are all insufficient sources of unity. They're just not good enough, right? They're just not good enough to hold people together. Only Christ can be the center of our unity. And we don't tend to drift towards that, 
We don't tend to drift towards keeping Christ the main thing in our own lives and in the life of our church, right? It takes intentionality. Even Peter, even Peter, when you look at uh, his actions, and, and we, we see a, a bit of a different Peter in Galatians. In Galatians 2, 11, uh, it says Cephas here is referring to Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain uh, men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, what Paul is saying here is Peter slipped back to the very thing that he was, uh, he was, he was defending against. You know, or, anyway, you get the point. Peter uh, was denying uh, himself the temptation to keep these Gentiles at arm's length. But as a little bit of, we can assume, as a little bit of time progressed, then he, he kind of changed a little bit, right? He, he began to draw away from the Gentiles to only eat with Jews. And Paul had to give him a reminder, hey man, keep Jesus at the center, right? Keep the gospel the main thing, because without it, you're going to draw away uh, from others. I believe the, the truth is the same for us. When we allow other things besides Jesus, besides the shared salvation that we have, being saved from our sins, when we allow other things to become the main thing, we'll become hostile to one another, to those outside our church, and we won't be able to have the kind of unity that we're called for, the, the, the groundbreaking, radical unity found here in Acts 10 and 11. We'll miss it. And so my charge to us is to keep Christ the main I'm going to pray for us. Father, we know that it is not easy to center ourselves around something else. We are, by nature, selfish people. We want the best, at least, that we perceive for us, and so we will fight and claw and scratch to get it. Lord, you've called us to deny ourselves. At times that means realizing we have biases or prejudice or partiality against another person and it would call us to exclude them from our midst. Lord, I pray that wouldn't be true of us. I pray that you would keep Jesus at the center of our faith and practice, our worship and joy. I pray that you would continue to grow us as a congregation into your desired will for us and we would put away sin, we would live righteously, and that we would reflect your character. Lord, we pray all of this in the name of Christ.